Hello and welcome once again to DDA's Encouraging Abilities podcast. I am your host, DDA Communications Manager Evan Kelly. Now, one of the big topics we like to talk about is accessibility. It's such an important topic because many people don't realize that at some point in their life, they might find themselves with limited mobility, limited vision, hearing, even cognitive ability. It's going to happen to all of us. Uh, Joining us today is Brad McCannell. He has the experience uh, and a resume that's going to take me a few minutes just to read, so I'll try to do the abridged version. Now, Brad's career uh, in access consulting began in 1990 when he formed uh, Canadian Barrier Free Design, that's CBFD, and that's created to fill the gap between the application of building code and the real needs of the community of people with disabilities. He himself became a C67 quadriplegic after a car accident in 1980 at the age of 27. So he does have his lived experience. He uses a wheelchair and a service dog on a daily basis. Today, he finds himself the Vice President of Access and Inclusion for the Rick Hansen uh, Foundation, a member of the International Paralympic Committee's Access Working Group, and was recently appointed as the Director of the Accessibility Standards Council of Canada. Additionally, his Consulting has been sought by the Vancouver International Airport, Airports Council International, the Project Advisory Panel of CSA Housing Standards, and the Vancouver 2010 Olympic and Paralympic Games. Uh, He was appointed to the newly struck BC Technical Committee on Employment Accessibility, and that was fairly recently. Now today, at the the Rick Hansen Foundation, um, he was tasked with developing an industry standard certification program that would be used as a guide to creating more accessible environments. Now that would be the Rick Hansen Foundation Accessibility Certification, RHFAC, that's a rating program that has been rolled out nationally even to develop common methodology and common um, language for professionals working to, to, to develop access for people with disabilities in the built environment. He is, I'm not done, he is the recipient of the City of Vancouver's Access and Inclusion Award 2010 and the Canadian Paraplegic Association's Award of Distinction. Okay, Brad, I think I'm done with that. Thank you very much for joining us today. Gosh, I'm exhausted. <laughs> You're exhausted. <laughs> it's quite a, it's quite a list and it's quite an uh, unbelievable list of accomplishments and awards. It's really, really impressive. Now, Having been been in the field of accessibility for almost thirty years, what are some of the major changes have you seen in BC's approach to accessibility? Well, first, let me thank you so much for this opportunity. It's a real pleasure to speak with you today. I've been a professional access consultant for twenty-seven years, but I've been a member of the community of people with disabilities for forty-three years. So my experience is both personal and professional. And having said that, the difference is night and day in terms of the approach. I mean, British Columbia has been a leader in meaningful access for decades. Uh, I think it's important to recognize the history here. You know, most people don't even realize uh, the history of leadership that we've shown here as as a a province and as as people with lived experience. It started with the great Ed Desjardins, a personal hero of mine, Mm -hmm. who established something called GF Strong in 1948. And that was the first Spinal Cord Rehabilitation Center in North America. So wow. there's real history. Ed, Ed, Ed got the very first accessible parking space requirements written in the building code in Vancouver here in the early 70s. So, you know, BC's pioneered this stuff for decades. And I, I think understanding that and understanding our history is part of knowing why BC is a leader in the whole country in this issue. So I, I think the province needs to be congratulated for the leadership in developing the built environment. But 
in terms of changes in the approach, I would say the biggest change is there's a much better focus on inclusion now. Understanding that wheelchair users, uh, the, the focus has always been on wheelchair users. And it, it, it's making odd coming from a wheelchair user, but gosh, no, we've dominated the discussion, we've dominated the codes, we've dominated the regulations. Now, if you ask somebody in the street about disability, the first thing that pops in their head is a wheelchair. Uh, the international symbol for people with disabilities is a wheelchair, and yet we're somewhere south of 30% of the population of people with disabilities. So what's heartening to me is that discussion is now changing to, to really include people with hearing loss and visual impairments and people in the neurodiverse community. And that's a huge change, but it's a much bigger challenge. Yeah, of, of course that would be. Now, do you think there are some places where BC needs to improve just off the top of your head? Where have we missed the mark a little bit? Oh, well, you know, it's really easy to poke holes in projects because everything was built using a code minimum access strategy. And as I said, if you're meeting code, you're not meeting the needs of the community. It's just, it's, it's just mobility center. It's one of the biggest problems in the community people with disabilities face in terms of the built, you know, the built environment is the idea that meeting code somehow makes you accessible uh, and those are just not, that's just not a reasonable equation thing. And part of the problem too is that um, architecture schools don't teach accessibility, don't teach universal design. Neither do the schools of engineering and nobody thinks it. It's not part of the curriculum. It's very weird to me. I think like a doctor trying to learn how to be a doctor without understanding nutrition, you know, like mm. how can you know what to do if you don't know what goes into it kind of thing. No, no, exactly. But, you know, well, that's why the RHFAC was created, because it, we need that extra tool. The industry needs that tool. So tell me a little bit of how, how that uh, that certification, the Rick Hansen Foundation Accessibility certification, certification came about. Well, we knew we needed a reference standard for the industry, but code wasn't cutting it. Code couldn't possibly see that. Um, our job was to, to tell people what's actually there and who it affects. So we're not the code police. We don't come in here and tell you all the things you did wrong. And in fact, one of the critical parts of our program is to identify and celebrate access where it's there. Too often, it's just taken for granted. So we want to, part of our, our our rating system is a section on innovation. And if you've done something really cool, we want to celebrate that. So the RHFAC is designed just to create a baseline specific to your facility. And it's a place to start. It's not an end, it's a beginning. So, how can you fix things unless you know they're broken? <laughs> so how how is the the certification then sort of employed, if you will? Well, it's a uh, it's a process. To, to begin with, it's not another uh, it's not another checklist. It is a uh, it's a, a rating system. It's a weighted scale. It can only be uh, administered by a person who's taken the RHFAC training and understands the various line items and who they affect. But the process is a, a, a skilled professional, an RHFAC professional, will come on site and use the rating system to literally go through your building and see what's there and on the weighted scale determine what level of access is being provided overall. And one of the most important keys to our process is it's that holistic approach. What's happening now is people are working on feature-based access. So you know, a facility operator will grab a checklist from somewhere and they're everywhere. Everybody's got a checklist. I hate checklists. But they take the checklist and they run into the facility and they, they go to the washroom and they say, oh, look, we got grab bars. Check. And we've got a lowered urn on. Check. You know, paper towels in the right spot. Check. And then, okay, well, you got a pretty good washroom. And then they, 
they run over to the elevator and they say, oh, look, it's got a light-colored floor. Check. It's got handrails. Check. It's got braille symbols. Oh, it, well, it looks like we've got a pretty good facility. No, you don't. You've got a half-decent washroom and a code elevator. Nobody checked the reception. Nobody checked to see if someone could actually work there. Nobody checked if there was any kind of emergency egress for people with disabilities. So it's looking at that whole experience. The RHSAP takes it from the moment you get out of your car or off a bus or just walking off the street. As you go through the building, you work there, can you, can you operate there. It takes the whole experience of the user under consideration, not just whether you can go to the bathroom or not. Now, when it comes to someone, if, if, if say I'm a developer uh, and I'm and, you know making a community center or something, um, and, and I get the Rick Hansen Foundation Accessibility Certification uh, person coming in to check it out. Am I obligated to then um, uh, adhere to all the recommendations? Oh, that's one of the powers of the piece. You're not obligated to do anything. It's designed to inform you on what the current status is exactly. And so, you know, it's a process that... that professionalizes the delivery of accessible design to start with. It creates an inventory of access on the site. It creates incentives for building owners and operators. It, it places uh, improvements into the long-term planning process. And most importantly, from my perspective, it normalizes access considerations as part of a normal design and operating process. The great thing about it is as if you have an RHSAP rating done, you remain in control of that. We, we would never publish that. You never take that information and use it outside. It's your information on your facility, and it's designed to help you plan and move forward. Now, have you heard of any uh, developers sort of pushing back against some of these ideas or changes? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's an industry that hates change of any kind. I mean, change always costs money. That's just the way it's getting. And one of the problems we've got is, is as we increase the uh, requirements in, in basic code and standards, for the industry, that can be perceived as just more regulations, more things they have to do. And, and what we try to help them with is the idea of the return on investment that's available when you, when you do create accessible facilities. And, and maybe more importantly, how to change the culture within your organization to not see it as just more regulation and rather see it as an opportunity. Because it's just a huge opportunity, both in, in terms of uh, making money. We always say that a barrier to a person with a disability is a barrier to making a profit. But also, not, not just from a customer base, but from a workforce perspective. Everybody knows that the population is aging, but they're not equating that to the fact that their workforce is aging. And in order to keep that workforce working, changes are going to need to be made in the built environment. So best you know what your built environment is supplying right now. And... Um is there any, any other programs out there like this particular certification program, or is this breaking new ground here and, and across the country? Oh, this is definitely new ground, and, and internationally as well. There's, most of all the solutions are code-based solutions, and that's problematic on a number of ways. Relying on codes, typically, it takes an average of 7 to 12 years to get a code changed in uh, Canada, depending where you are and who you are. Um, and it's it, it so common, in fact, and it's so encouraged to do them to have a name for it. It's called code cycle. So they're always 10 years behind, no matter what they do. Because, and that's the nature of codes. And, and frankly, that's right and good, because the industry needs that stability of code. What we're doing is coming in and saying, here's the real needs of the community. You know, if you want to access 
you know, a tremendous workforce that's available. We hear this all the time. Watching the news, you watch an owner, oh, I can't find anybody to hire. And they're wringing their hands, and they're touching their pearls, and they oh, gosh, what are we going to do? Well, 57% of our community is unemployed. So if you can't find people to work for you, where are you looking? The whole nature of this thing has to be, when you, when you make these changes, you're making changes that are profitable both on the customer side and the human side. Yes, absolutely, uh, and that goes to my previous, you know, introduction. Like, there's, we're, we're all getting older, and you know, uh, yeah. arguably living longer, and we, you know, might need to work longer. So, these things need to be in place. Now, uh, we've we've talked a little bit about um, universal design. Is that really the way forward? How, what is that level of sort of per- perfection in your mind possible? Oh yeah, I, I mean, don't think of it as perfection. Just think of it as common sense. Unquestionably, universal design is the way forward, with the caveat that that whole concept of universal design is an aspirational goal. I mean, these are principles to be followed. They're not hard and fast rules. So how that gets interpreted in the, in the built environment is going to be different for every single site. Every built environment is unique. Every occupancy is different. And it has to be recognized that the idea of fully accessible, when we hear it's laughable, you, there's no such thing as fully accessible. You can't be fully accessible. You, you can't be accessible to all people with all disabilities and all locations and all and all occupancies at the same time. It, it's an unattainable dream. But so what that what that leaves you with is setting target levels of accessibility, understanding who you are serving, who your customers really are, who people with disabilities really are. And, and spoiler alert, it's not about a few wheelchair guys. As you said before, everybody's going to experience disability and so forth. It doesn't matter whether you do a face plant and you're a teenager and you end up in a wheelchair or you're 65 years old and you need a walker and a hearing aid. You will experience disability and you're going to for how long. Yeah, absolutely. No, so, how, uh, so can a developer get get their sort of get their own sort of certification and then build or do you, is it someone that that that's not in the company that has to come forward and do the certification no the only requirement is the person uh yeah registering the the, the rating on the register state has to be an RHSAC professional so uh for example you could take the course and assess your own property but they the the uh Fail safe on that for us is in, in the process. Once a, a, an RHFAC professional has posted something in the registry, it immediately goes to the CSA, CSA operates our registry as a third party, and they vet it for uh, accuracy. And then it goes to an adjudicator who looks at it and makes sure that the um, RHFAC professional wasn't just blowing smoke. So you can't just say, hey, it's gold, trust me. It goes in, our, our adjudicators look at it, they review the pictures, sometimes video as well, and they, they establish that, yes, that is, in fact, a gold building. Well, yes, that is 80% on our, on our scale. Uh, so that allows you to serve, uh, be able to assess your own building. And, and what's important for us there is we want as many people as possible to take the RHFAP training. That's the cultural shift that we're looking for. It wasn't enough just to create a bunch of access professionals. We've got access professionals right across the country, really good ones. What we needed was to shift the actual existing uh, culture, the existing industry, the existing architects, planners, and 
and building inspectors and help them understand the real built environment as it affects people with disabilities and understand it's not just about a few wheelchairs. And so the, the, the goal of the developer, whoever's doing building, is to get a what you mentioned was a gold rating? Yeah, it's, and it, that could be different from building to building. So in our program, if you get more than 80% of the available points, then you're in gold territory. Some people may get that because they're just exceptional for people with vision loss. Some people may get that because they're exceptional for people with hearing loss. The, the object of the extra guy is, is to get more than 80% of the available points on our scale. And just by way of comparison, if you uh, if you built a commercial space and follow the Ontario Building Code accessibility provisions uh, right to the letter, then you'd probably get up around 40% on our scale, so half on our scale is 60%. So it have to be better than that, but you know, getting to that level is not really difficult once you sort of look at the system and look at the low-hanging fruit, as we call it. So much of creating access is really easy, really inexpensive. It's just a matter of knowing knowing that you need to do it. I want to switch uh, gears a little bit, but is there anything else you'd like to add in terms of that sort of certification piece? Uh, just that how important it really is. and it's, it's a way of measuring uh, how we're doing in terms of creating meaningful access. But So it's... It, it, it's, it's a measuring tool, but the real power of the, is the, uh, the training course. Because once people, the great, the great advantage we have is once we start showing professionals in the field um, barriers to people with disabilities, once we once they start seeing it, they can never stop. And so it's really quite heartening because it, it really is it's a total life-changing experience when people are taking our course and then come out the other side, and, and once they start seeing all that stuff, that. Uh, I've got like a disciple out there. I, I can move on to the next piece because that's the cultural shift we're looking for. So I just implore people to take the training whenever they can. I guess I should uh, should ask how do, like for builders, developers, whoever. How do they uh, do? They just get in touch with the Rick Hansen Foundation to get the course going. Yeah, RickHansen.com, best place to go. There's lots of information there on accessibility, and and there's kind of two levels. There's the base level, which is called Accessible Spaces 101, and that's for people who are interested in universal design and, uh, and just want to understand it a little more. But there's also the professional course, which is the Rick Hansen Foundation Accessible Certification Program itself, and that's restricted to industry professionals, so architects, engineers, people with experience in the built environment, and uh, so that's the professional side of the thing. But there's two ways to, to come in. But the best portal of all is thecanton.com. There's so much stuff on there. It's, uh, it's very educational. I actually, I actually lied. I do have another question. How, is this, uh, how has this been received across the country and globally? Well, I'm really, really pleased to say that it, it's been accepted quite well. The, uh, nationally, it, it, you know, it's a process. We're actually... It's like that earlier, changing an industry that doesn't like to have any kind of change. But what's happening is people are seeing the value in it. They're seeing how, by using the RHFSA, it, it, it focuses their energy and puts the, the whole process of accessibility into the normal design and planning process. And it's that idea. If it's measurable, it gets fixed. If it's not measurable, it just becomes an anecdotal story. So creating the common language, creating common methodology means that we're all calling access the same thing, so it's measurable. That has found great footing across the country. And, for example, um, you know, the new 
as you may be aware, that we're, we're repairing and rebuilding the uh, parliamentary precinct, parliament buildings in Ottawa, and everything has to be read and read. They're going to use our FAC gold as their standard. So, you know, that kind, it's that kind of traction that we're getting right across the country. Halifax is doing amazing things. Uh, Vancouver's doing amazing things. So having that kind of uptake has been really heartening, but even more heartening is when we took the program to international conferences. And everybody said the same thing. Said, My gosh, nobody's doing this. Everybody's taking a code approach. And the problem with codes is, you know, it's, it's, it's an old joke. It's like the, the floggings will continue until morale improves. You can't just keep making the codes harder and harder and the penalties tougher and tougher without educating the industry. And the industry's paying for all this. So rather than have them feel just, it's, oh gosh, it's, it's more regulations and more hassle, the opportunity here is to show them the opportunity to make money on this deal. What's the return on investment? What's in it for you? And it's not just all altruistic and feel-good stuff. It's, it's dollars and cents. That's fantastic. Sounds like you do an incredible job. Uh, so your history here in BC goes back, obviously, many years. You've been working on the 2010 Olympic Games as a consultant. Tell, tell me a little bit about that. Oh, that was probably the high point of my career, to be honest. Uh, it, it was, to, it was uh, I'd, I'd gone to Beijing in 2008, which was one of the largest international Paralympic game events just for participants. There was well over 4,000 athletes there. And... Uh, that was a big undertaking, but to do that same thing and then in the winter is a much different proposition. Oh, but Vanoff was fabulous. The Vancouver organizing committee called Vanoff. Um, when I, I, I approached them at the bid stage and I said we should include accessibility right from the very beginning here, um, and to their credit, they, they got on board right away. But we we were doing things at that event that never been done before in the Olympics. For example. On the downhill ski run, we were able to put 200 people with disabilities along that route, outside, watching the actual ski event, watching you know, the high quads, event-dependent quads in wheelchairs parked on the side of a mountain to watch an event. And it was fabulous. And it, you know, we were able to do things unheard of in the presentation of the Winter Games in particular. And so, for me, it all came down to the end when Jacques Rigas, who at the time was the uh, head of the uh, International Organizing Committee. And uh, he always designated the games, each game, every game is the, the friendliest games or the most wonderful games or the best games. He designated Vancouver's games as the most family-friendly games ever. And that's me. That's universal design. That's that idea that if we can make it work and safe and fun for Young people and old people, everything else in the middle will work itself out. And we were able to do that in, in unprecedented terms. It was, it was a huge success for me. Wow, that must make you feel quite proud. Um, so how does your work with the Rick Hansen Foundation differ from your work with the Accessibility Standards uh, Canada Board? Oh, well, that's uh, a little bit of apples and oranges. That the, uh, the ASC, Accessible Standards Canada, is mission to design standards uh, that support building codes across the country. And the idea is to get federally regulated uh, businesses, operations to align to this code, and then to get the provinces to align to that again. So we have a standard, consistent messaging across the country. And 
that is important as a code approach. But as I said earlier, that's only half the problem. We need strong codes, we need strong enforcement, and we need significant penalties for people who don't follow the code. You need the big stick. But that by itself won't get it done. If you want real change, you have to shift the culture. You have to get people to understand who this is about. It's not about a few wheelchair guys. It's about you, your mom, your family. It's because everybody's going to experience disability on some level. So making the built environment work is the absolute key to everything. You know, if the need for accessible transportation is lessened if there's no accessible destination. And if you can't get in a building, then the best employment equity program in the world won't work if I just I can't get in the building if we look for users. Getting this built environment sorted out is, is a single step, but it, it takes two things. It takes really strong codes, but it also takes an educated industry, an industry that understands the return on investment and understands that this is a huge opportunity. This isn't more regulation. This isn't onerous. This is a chance to, to cash in. So some of it is some of this barrier breaking is just the changing of attitudes. I mean, according to your LinkedIn bio, you say that the biggest barrier to success for people with disabilities is the overall attitude of society. It's society's assumption that because you have a disability, it means you can't achieve as much. Are we? Are uh, mm -hmm. society's attitudes getting better? Is inclusion working? Oh yeah, it's because it's becoming personal. People are seeing it in their own homes. Yeah, we did an Angus Reid poll recently, and it was the first time I'd ever seen people take it personally. In the past, it's always, oh, yes, access is good. You know, I think it's good for those people. It's good for someone else. This was the first time that 30% of the respondents came back and said that they saw it in their own lives. They saw that the house that they planned to retire in, when they looked at it again, realized it's nothing but theirs. And so if people are starting to take it personally at that level, and, and that's where the real change is coming from. Disability touches roughly 50% of the population today. Today. It's not something that's going to happen down the road. We're not promising to you know, and, and It's interesting how we get to that number. It's uh, you know, Right now, 24% of the population reports having a significant disability. And the key word there is reports, because there's tens of thousands of people who don't report their disability for a lot of really good reasons. But you know, let's just take the 24% for a second. Every one of us has at least one other person in our lives, you know, Mother, father, sister, brother, neighbor, lover, best friend, even if it's a paid caregiver, even if it's a paid lover, we all have at least one other person in our life that also benefits from an accessible environment. And that's whether it's because it's easier for me, it, therefore it's easier for them, but it's also safer for them to help me. It's a better environment for them to assist. And, and, and they remain, you know, able-bodied people instead of hurting themselves, getting in and out of the bathroom with them. And so that, that's where the payoff is. And it sounds easy to accomplish. It sounds like we, like just changing that attitude and changing our approach to things is not as difficult as people would think. Now, no, I, it's just, it, what, it, what the key to it all is, 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 is conversation. Conversations like this one. Helping people understand that what access is really all about and, and the idea that it's about a few wheelchair guys, is, and we fight that every day. Every presentation, I kind of start with that, just to help people understand that we're not talking about a few wheelchair guys. Now, I guess the, the one thing that's sort of been highlighted in the news a lot lately, though, in terms of industries making changes, is airlines. Um, ah. 
I mean, there's been news stories about people uh, having their wheelchairs lost or damaged beyond repair. And some of these wheelchairs are really expensive, like three five thousand dollar wheelchairs. Um, as as a, as a consultant, so like, what sort of policies would you like to see in place to ensure that this doesn't happen? Well, uh, first off, your your estimation on the cost of wheelchairs is way low. I have a power chair, and uh, it's thirty eight thousand dollars. Wow, and that's pretty typical. Uh, so people with rent dependent, uh, people who are rent dependent, have much more expensive chairs, and so that, and that's why it's so critical when, when a piece gets damaged. Yeah, I think the latest piece I saw just the other day, uh, somebody they destroyed a guy's wheelchair, and they gave him what we call an active duty lightweight. It's the airport chair, so little aluminum things. Are, they cost about six hundred bucks. So, you know, my chair is thirty eight thousand. That's six hundred bucks. That tells you a lot. But they 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 give you that chair, and they're thinking, okay, he's got a wheelchair. What's the problem? <laughs> the problem is, you know, wheelchairs are very specific. You know, they're, they're they're prescribed for you. The dimensions are exact. How they hold you, where your back is sitting, where you know if you're event dependent, how all that works. It's all critically and personal. You know, if you buy a wheelchair, I, my wheelchair is thirty eight thousand dollars. If I try to sell it now, I get made a thousand bucks for it because it's made for me. It's not made for anybody else. And so it's understanding it. And so the airlines have got to figure this out. Now, fortunately, there's a there's a real big movement. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It's called the uh, All Wheels Up. And it's a it's a group of people who recognize airlines wrecking equipment is becoming way too common. I think the last stat I heard is that if you bring a mobility device on an airplane, there's a twenty percent chance it'll be either harmed or destroyed in that trip. So that's ridiculous. But I, I, you know, the airlines have to understand how critical these are. These aren't just like something you just replace. Well, no, exactly. But in they, any case, they're an extension of you, aren't they? Like it's not just a chair. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and they're not interchangeable. You know, I, I, Rick Hansen's my boss. I can't use his wheelchair. But, but I was just, I was mentioning, there's a, there's not, uh, excuse me, there's a, uh, there's an effort called All Wheels Up, and it's, uh, what they've done is they've, they've figured out a way you can take your wheelchair right on the airplane and just use the same kind of uh, attaching device that you use in cars, uh, whether it's a Q-strain or strap-down system. So you'd stay in your own chair and you get on the airplane that way. Um, that would eliminate giving up your equipment. It would give people their own seating and a long trip, which is really important for most of us. But it's, uh, it's, a, it's an idea who's really come. The thing that held it back for so long is there was no crash testing available, so they wouldn't know the real results. Well, that's now been completed. So it's a completely viable thing. Now the hard part is to get airlines to give up the uh, first, first ca- cabin and move it to the back. Mm-hmm. Because the only way to work on an airplane is we can get in the first class section and sit in the front. Yeah, I think it's coming. I think it's inevitable. I don't think the airlines can keep wrecking equipment like this. I mean, they got enough problems without wrecking our stuff. Yeah, well, it seems like there's enough talk to to moving this stuff forward. So that that that's good. Um, you know, you're, you're you're talking about your chair being worth thirty eight thousand dollars, which is un, unbelievable. Um, now Canada has yeah. been moving forward the on the on the proposal. Yeah, I think that's. I think people who are sort of like typically developed or haven't suffered injuries um, and then lack their mobility don't quite understand how costly it can be to have a disability. So, with that said, what I mean, what are your feelings on the proposed Canada disability benefit that's still inching its way through 
um, the government. Well, hinging its way through, indeed. But, but it's a complete game changer. Like you say, people don't understand how much it costs to have a disability. At the risk of being way too personal, uh, I, I could ask you, how much does it cost you to go to the bathroom and pee? Not a whole lot. I, not a whole lot. It costs me five bucks. Really? Every time I go. $600 a month I have to spend in Catherine. And that's not covered by anybody. That's out of your own pocket. Wow. You know, if, if if you want to go buy a Honda minivan, it's going to cost you around thirty five thousand bucks. But if I want to go buy an accessible Honda minivan, it costs around ninety thousand dollars. Jeez. You know, if I want to, if, if I want to go talk to a lawyer, all I have to do is pay the lawyer. But if you're deaf, you also have to pay for an interpreter. Mm-hmm. And 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 on top of that, just to add insult to injury, you have to pay GST on that. So you're being taxed on your need for an interpreter. So all these hidden expenses around people with disabilities. So having having a reliable income, having a, a having a little more in the pot to work with, this isn't you know windfall benefits for people. No. This is survival. And so it's critically important. And yes, it's inching its way through, and it's so vexing to see how long it's taking to, to me remedy the obvious. Yeah. That's that's you know that, that just brings that right down to reality. It's 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 kind of scary. So we're we're just about wrapping up here, Brad. What what can the general public do to really foster an inclusion and accessibility from your point of view? Oh, just demand more. Don't go in the back door. You know, make, if the front door is not accessible, don't go there. Don't go to noisy restaurants. You know. Yeah. Uh, Insist on alternate formats like large print and plain language for documents. Don't be quiet about it. You got to make sure the restaurant knows why you don't want to go there. You have to make sure the employer, if he's offering a position and not offering alternate formats for the hiring materials, that they're aware of the both the legal and regulatory pitfalls, but also just how they're missing it. And, and mm-hmm. I find that when this pointed out, most often people go, "Oh my gosh, I never, never even thought of it." Well, on the one hand, it's terrible because you never even thought of it. <laughs> you know, like with a the thing about people with disabilities, right? Where World Health Organization says well, there's 1.3 billion people with disabilities in the world. That's a bigger market than China. Yeah, so it is. how can you keep ignoring it like that? It's just uh, it's just so incredibly vexing. Yeah, there's buying. There's a ton of buying power there, right? Businesses yeah. need to learn. And, that, and that's that return on investment we were talking about earlier. It's just understanding those kinds of things and how we've we got to stop being quiet about it. You've got to start demanding more access and, and, and not putting up with this status quo stuff because status quo is is just, we don't have any status at all. Mm-hmm. No more, it's a nice guy. It's time to get loud. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um so it's and you know I mean you you sounded very very happy with the the progress that British Columbia in particular is making in terms of accessibility and inclusion, but it's sometimes on, on a smaller scale, in, you know, like you're talking about restaurants, it feels like there's still quite a long way to go. Well, yeah, and it, uh, most of it's education, but it's also the financial reality. There's a perception out there that that creating access is expensive, and it's just not. It some of the most of the stuff, we call it low-hanging fruit. You can do so much to make your place more 
user friendly just by doing simple things. Simple things like having a, a hearing loop at the reception desk or in a meeting room. For anybody with a hearing aid, that's a game changer. And it's a thousand dollars as an installation. It's cheap. Yeah. You know, using wayfinding, you know, when people talk about wayfinding, they think we're talking about signage, and signage is really important. But the other wayfinding things you can do that reduce stress and make things really easy for people, you get you can you know use color, you can use texture, you can use scent, you can use sound, you can use all these different things. We had one uh, problem. This goes back a few years, but the client the client's office was in a gray building, had a gray door, a gray entrance. Everything was gray. People were having uh, people with vision impairments were having a hard time finding the door. So we planted lavender, and then they knew where they were by the smell. So there's all kinds of things you can do that are really simple and really cheap. You know, like, like we call them a can of paint. One of our most vexing things in our in our community is the building code works really, really hard at getting people with disabilities into buildings and doesn't care at all about getting us out in an emergency. There is no requirement for emergency, emergency egress to be accessible. So the next time you're standing in front of an elevator and you see that little plaque that says, in case of fire, take stairs, Where's the little plaque that tells me what to do? Mm-hmm. You know, here's a fire, good luck, sucker. <laughs> you know, so it's that whole idea. It's, it's, it's a full circle here. Getting me in the building isn't enough if you can't get me out. Yeah, and to me, you know, from someone who works in communications, I think it's, uh, if I was to go into businesses and I could market my business as accessible, you know, in inside and out, that would be a great... Yeah draw for people you'd make money yes you would yes you would and uh, we you know we did another angus recall and we found that already today 30 percent of the population is accessible business already today wow. it's not future stuff and so it, it it's remarkable to me that there is any kind of resistance to this. if i'm in the if i'm in industry if i'm building any kind of public shopping malls or anything I don't know how you could not put this at the top of your list because 50% of the population is going to be affected by it. 30% are already deciding. Can anybody decide that they can close the doors to 30% of the population? Yeah. How's that possible? That'd just be the wrong decision, that's for sure. Yeah. Now, it's much harder in your business. Communication being really meaningful access to communication is a tough job. Well, yeah, I so, mean... There's so many levels of it. Yeah, and and you know we're we're building a brand new website right now for DDA, and uh, we're ensuring that everything about it is accessible. We're adding some widgets that make it that give people lots of option options. So it's uh, actually quite a quite a good experience, good learning experience for myself even. So yeah, and even the the plain language movement, you know, getting mm-hmm. getting documents so that they're not so complicated and that people can understand them easily. Now, there's lots of people that you know that that's a specific need for, but that's one of those things that everybody would benefit from. Absolutely. And we all need to keep that in mind when, when we're doing documents and putting them on the website. The other big thing is, is to create an ASL window so that if you have a, you know, if you're introducing a program, for example, and, and you want to reach out to the community, having an, a little window there where a person can click on it and they get an ASL interpretation of what's there, it's a game changer. Yep, it's a, absolutely. And that's, that's true inclusion. Yep, yep. We will get there, Brad. We will oh, absolutely yes, we will. get it. <laughs> Anything else to add yes. today? Oh, no, I just, I just want to thank you for the time. It, 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 as I said earlier, this is the kind of conversation that we all need to have. Yeah. And just to recognize that 
it's an opportunity, you know. That right now, this whole idea of able-bodied males, the design, the, the, the building code, the design parameters are all built around 18 to 55-year-old males, mm. and that's just got to stop. And as soon as you point that out, as soon as the architects, planners, owners, operators, as soon as they see that, they, they're not connecting the dots. But right. as soon as they do, it's just wonderful what happens. So. Thank you for helping me connect with us. <laughs> My pleasure. Brad, it was a pleasure having you. Well, you know, this is a very deep well that we kind of brushed <laughs> over. So almost any one of your questions we could probably do a show on. Exactly, so, right? Maybe, maybe another show. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's, we'll do a few more. Okay, Excellent. so while you have been listening to DDA's Encouraging Abilities podcast, our guest today has been the intrepid Brad McCannell, the Rick Hansen Foundation's Vice President of Access and Inclusion. Brad, thanks again. I am your host, Evan Kelly. We'll see you next time.